So this is a 74-year-old retired business executive who actually lives four houses away from me, but I did not know very well, who in April of this year developed lower GI bleeding, complicated by the fact that he was on both Coumadin and Plavix for atrial fibrillation and coronary artery stents. So he had a colonoscopy, which showed a poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma in his ascending colon. And at the time of resection, the same pathology was evident, and four nodes were positive for cancer, but only five were removed. Of course, his past history was troubling because he has diabetes and significant coronary artery disease. Any evidence of neuropathy? No, not clinically evident. How much do you think neuropathy would have been a problem for him in terms of his personal life? I think it might have been a problem, and I'm always cautious about people who are diabetic or alcoholics having subclinical neuropathy that potentially neuropathic drugs might exacerbate or bring out. And was he the type of patient who was out on the internet coming in with a whole bunch of printouts, or was he more leaving it up to you? Well, his children were on the internet looking things up. Charlie, one of the issues Dr. Weinstein mentioned to me on the phone about this case is the question of flux as an option with oxaliplatin. Can you kind of review the data there compared to Mosaic and how you think through these kinds of cases? Sure. Well, I think the NSABP trial using Flox is encouraging. It looks like they get a similar benefit with Flox that we see with Folfox and Mosaic. What I'm a little concerned about with regard to the NSABP data is that I don't feel like we've seen enough of the toxicity data. And certainly as the trial was going on, and at least in other bolus 5-FU oxaliplatin studies, I've been concerned that it's not as well tolerated as Folfox. So I personally have not used bolus 5-FU and oxaliplatin or Flox in the adjuvant setting or for that matter in the metastatic setting. In a patient such as yours, I would prefer to use Folfox. And it looked like there might have been more GI toxicity. Is that your take, Dan? Yeah, I think there is. And we'd like to see more numbers than the ones presented two years ago. But I agree with Charlie is the Flox data for me doesn't make me want to Flox people. I still Folfox them. But what it says to me is that, again, with the perils of cross-trial comparison, if you look at three-year DFS, they're virtually identical. And when you look at the delivered dose, it's about three-quarters in the FLOX trial compared to the Mosaic trial. So what that tells me is if I have someone out at cycle eight and they have a grade one neuropathy sliding into a two, I'm not going to be proud of getting to 12 full cycles of Folfox and thinking I'm doing them a favor. What I'll do is stop the oxaliplatin at that point and continue the four further cycles of LV5-FU2, which was already done in the Andre study that showed equivalent to the Mayo Clinic data. So I feel comfortable with 12 cycles, but I don't think they all need to have oxaliplatin. And I'm not convinced that any of the things we currently have other than dose modifications, will avoid the problem. Charlie, what about the patient who already has a significant neuropathy? I think there you have to be concerned that their functional status may be impaired with oxaliplatin, and I think that it's something you really have to weigh the risks and the benefits, at least in my mind, with individuals such as this. Well, a patient like this, four or five positive nodes, let's say he had significant neuropathy, maybe with functional problems, would you consider oxaliplatin? With four positive nodes with only five samples, I'd be very worried, and I would lean towards using Folfox, but monitoring them very carefully and making it clear to them that they have to be very careful about reporting the extent of neuropathy. Dan? Charlie, what's your take on the PETOC3 trial? How would you use the data from that to say, if the children said, we want our dad to get combination therapy, but we're concerned about the neuropathy, what about Irina Tikan? As we all well know, the PETOC study is really a null study. The difference using Fulfiri or an arena-TKN 5-FU regimen compared to 5-FU leucoborin is not statistically significant. We've heard that 
the endpoint they chose to use, which they defined as disease-free survival, was not the same endpoint as mosaic in that included secondary cancers. When they used the same endpoint as mosaic, that is eliminating secondary prostate and breast cancers, they get borderline statistically significant benefit for full theory, but that wasn't the predefined endpoint. So long story short, I don't think PETAC-3 is a positive study, and I have not used full theory as an adjuvant regimen. It's an intriguing conundrum we're in, in that metastatic disease in the intergroup trial, we allow physicians to choose full theory or full fox saying they're interchangeable, yet we have this black and white conclusion that full fox is a positive trial for sure, and arenotecan is the negative trial. I suspect the truth is somewhere in between. I think there's a quirk of the PETOC-3 study in terms of its study design, as you point out, because it's intuitively wrong to me to think that full theory isn't somewhat better than 5-Ethylucavorin. It just didn't get tested the right way. Right. That wouldn't push me to use it. But I do believe, having looked at the raw data, there were trends in the right direction. They just didn't meet all the pretty endpoints that you would have liked to have seen. And I do think maybe the adjuvant model is one in which fall fox is a little bit better. It's just that in metastatic disease, it's too complex to pick that out. Have you actually done it since those data came out? I did it in one patient, actually, who developed neuropathy on cycle six, and it was a situation where the children said, we'd like more than just 5-Ephylucavorin to conclude. We went through the PETOC data in great detail, and the patient elected to get full theory for the last six cycles. Have you done it, Charlie? I have not used full theory in an adjuvant setting, although I haven't at least since PETAC came out, been faced with a patient who had such significant neuropathy that I was unwilling to give full fox. Lowell? Just considering the competing causes of death in the 74-year-old, if we put him into adjuvant online, would the absolute survival benefit from Mosaic be worth it to him? And what would you, thinking in that mode, what would it be the percentage of an absolute survival benefit for full fox versus 5-FU? And, How old is he And now? just leaving it out. He's 74. 74. With so, diabetes and coronary disease. So he would be in a lower health as part of the adjuvant online. Of course, that's one of the great things about that. Any thoughts on that, Charlie? Well, I think you have to be very concerned with four out of five nodes being positive, and I think his inherent risk of disease recurrence from colon cancer, from my standpoint, I mean, I can't quantitate it because I don't have the program in front of me, nor do I know precisely the longevity for somebody who's 74 with that degree of CAD and diabetes, but I'd be more concerned in general, qualitatively, about his risk of colon cancer recurrence. You mentioned that in the FLOX versus the FOLFOX data, only about 75% of the dose was delivered. Now, I thought that's what you just said. Of the dose delivered in the FLOX trial was 75% of that delivered in the Mosaic trial. The both planned, planned and delivered. By design. By design. By right, design right, of there's 75. Only th- there's only three cycles of chemotherapy. I presented a number of options to him including a clinical trial that we had running with Folfox and Avastin, but he was, of course, ineligible because of his anticoagulation. We talked a lot about neuropathy, and it was my clinical impression that his diabetes was going to be problematic when Folfox was added to it in terms of neuropathy. So we actually did choose to go on Flox, and he is about halfway through it. How's he doing? Well, from the chemotherapy point of view, he's fine, but he was hospitalized just last week for an exacerbation of lower GI bleeding due to very high INR from his Coumadin. But from the chemotherapy, he's fine. Any other questions or thoughts? One thought as an aside, a paper that actually Dan was a co-author with me on, we actually looked at Dan's large intergroup study. We looked at whether diabetes actually influenced survival from colon cancer. No surprise, diabetics had a shorter survival 
and that may just be related to non-colon cancer events, but they actually had a higher rate of colon cancer recurrence and published in a fine journal such as the JCO. So it looked like in a fairly large population, diabetes may be a risk factor for colon cancer recurrence in the adjuvant setting. Also, they had a higher rate of 5-FU-related toxicity events. Diabetics did. Okay, so now I'm going to have to ask you about the exercise thing that you presented since we were starting to get into other issues. Can you talk about that analysis that you did? I think it's just so fascinating. Well, thank you. The findings for the diabetes really made us wonder whether there was some biological effect because it affected cancer recurrence. And specifically, we know that things like insulin are actually trophic to colon cancer cells. And for the most part, type 2 diabetics have a particular problem. Not so much they don't have insulin, but mostly they're hyperinsulinemic. They're just insulin resistant. So we wanted to look at whether other sort of physiologic states of insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia might actually relate to colon cancer recurrence, namely obesity and sedentary lifestyle. So in the last CLGB study, unfortunately another failure for arena TKN in the adjuvant setting, which was the IFL regimen compared to 5 if you look of Warren, we were able to actually give questionnaires to patients at study entry and a year later. And it's fairly extensive. I think, Dan, you've seen it. It's a 16-page questionnaire, which 95% of patients completed, asking about physical activity, diet. And the bottom line is that physical activity was remarkably predictive of survival. That is both cancer recurrence and overall survival for patients with stage 3 colon cancer. That is, those who were physically active had a significant benefit. My recollection is that if you did roughly six hours of walking a week, you had a 47% improvement in disease-free survival compared to sedentary individuals. Now, one might actually question whether maybe people who are physically active just are healthier, maybe the people who are sedentary have occult cancer. But in fact, even if we exclude all the events in the first six months after filling out the questionnaire, we still see the same phenomenon. And we wanted to reproduce it, and we were fortunate that the JCO actually took. We did a second analysis in the nurses' health study, a separate cohort looking at the same issue, and physical activity was strongly protective. So we found it very interesting. Dan? If I'm not mistaken, these data are completely consistent with breast cancer data as well, so there's continuity of data. And it certainly has changed my practice in this, not that I treat breast cancer patients, but I think our patients look to us to be more holistic than just picking drug A versus drug B. I also get into the whole thing about diet, nutrition, and exercise now as to things they can do that are probably going to add more than the 2 to 3% that oxaliplatin might have in terms of five-year survivorship in your patient. I appreciate your saying that. And as a matter of fact, earlier in the day in clinic, somebody who's just finished their adjuvant Folfox, I discussed with them the value of exercise. And in breast cancer, there was actually a prospective randomized style, the WIND study yes. that Rowan Shabalowski reported showing that dietary fat reduction reduced recurrence rate. It's interesting. You look at those disease-free survival curves and your disease-free survival curves, and if we'd seen the same thing with the IFL everybody would be all over it. And it doesn't seem to have attracted as much attention as you might have expected, Dan. Colon cancer never does get that much attention. And Rose also ran. Dan? Just another point on the node status. We've published a fair amount of data in many journals now about nodal ratios, that it's not only the fact that this is an N2 patient with four positive nodes, but also only five nodes were examined. And it's very clear from the data from intergroup 089 and other studies in gastric cancer, now in breast cancer, that the number of negative nodes is equally important. So four of five and four of 50 
have very different connotations in terms of five-year survivorship. So this N2 patient may do worse actually than the typical N2 with the requisite 10 to 12 removed nodes. The issue is why do some people have more nodes than others? Is it the pathologist? Partly, I think until we convince our pathologists that we care, they're not going to be as assiduous at looking. I don't think it's the surgeon because typical surgical approaches include equal volumes of nodal tissue. But the other is implicit in data from MD Anderson that they haven't yet published on node negative patients. And what they looked at was the size of lymph nodes and the number of lymph nodes in node negative patients. And people with plumper nodes did better than those that had small nodes. And people with fewer nodes did worse. And it may be that the nodes are actually a marker of immunologic competence someone that only has five nodes that are recognizable and four of them are overwhelmed with tumor, connotes not only an aggressive tumor, but a bad host. Very theoretical. I've interviewed at least, I would say, 10 clinical research surgeons in colorectal cancer for this new series. And most of them feel there is an element of surgical technique involved, that it's maybe partially pathology not being as thorough, but you know, there's interesting technical aspects of the surgery that they feel may contribute. But getting back to this ratio, Charlie, a 60-year-old, totally healthy person who has you know, 19 out of 20 nodes, has been on the internet, et cetera, would you consider Avastin adjuvant off-protocol? I'd certainly be worried about 19 positive nodes. I might consider adding Avastin, but I think a strict view of the literature would say don't do it and enroll them on the current study that really is addressing that question. I guess that if you really wanted to persuade yourself to do it, 19 positive nodes sounds like metastatic disease to me, and I might be persuaded to do it for that reason. Dan? I have mixed feelings about bevacizumab, and I'm not a biologist, but in an adjuvant setting, because if you're talking about microvascularization, and we're talking about micrometastases here, I'm not sure what role bevacizumab has if it really has to do with drug delivery into tumors and increasing tumor permeability. We're talking about, again, micrometastases. I actually think in this setting that EGFR inhibitors, in particular the antibodies that have independent activity, might be more interesting. So the current, we have both tests. We have Folfox bevacizumab in three trials, and we have Folfox cetuximab in the intergroup trial in the U.S. So we'll have the answer... Again, unfortunately, not all in the same study there in independent studies. And I know a lot of the physicians in this room are participating in those trials. are really a tremendous excitement, tremendous accrual. Okay, I want to go on to Dr. Hussein's case. Dr. Hussein? 